This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Servile State by Hilaire Belloc. Section 11. On the other hand, the collectivist experiment is thoroughly suited, in appearance at least, to the capitalist society which it proposes to replace. It works with the existing machinery of capitalism, talks and thinks in the existing terms of capitalism, appeals to just those appetites which capitalism has aroused, and ridicules as fantastic and unheard of just those things in society, the memory of which capitalism has killed among men whenever the blight of it has spread. So true is all this that the stupider kind of collectivist will often talk a capitalist phrase of society as the necessary precedent to a collectivist phase. A trust or monopoly is welcomed because it furnishes a mode of transition from private to public ownership. Collectivism promises employment to the great mass who think of production only in terms of employment. It promises to its workmen the security which a great and well-organized industrial capitalist unit, like one of our railways, can give through a system of pensions, regular promotions, etc., but that security vastly increased through the fact that it is the state, and not a mere unit of the state, which guarantees it. Collectivism would administer, would pay wages, would promote, would pension off, would fine, and all the rest of it, exactly as the capitalist state does today. The proletarian, when the collectivist or socialist state is put before him, perceives nothing in the picture save certain ameliorations of his present position. Who can imagine that if, say, two of our great industries, coal and railways, were handed over to the state tomorrow, the armies of men organized therein would find any change in the character of their lives, save in some increase of security, and possibly in a very slight increase of earnings. The whole scheme of collectivism presents, so far as the proletarian mass of a capitalist state is concerned, nothing unknown at all, but a promise of some increment in wages and a certainty of far greater ease of mind. To that small minority of a capitalist society which owns the means of production, collectivism will of course appear as an enemy, but even so, it is an enemy which they understand, and an enemy with whom they can treat in terms common both to that enemy and to themselves. If, for instance, the state proposes to take over such and such a trust, now paying 4%, and believes that under state management it will make the trust pay 5%, then the transference takes a form of a business proposition. The state is no harder to the capitalists taken over than was Mr. Yerkes to the underground. Again, the state, having a great credit and longevity, can, it would seem, buy out any existing capitalist body upon favorable terms. Again, the discipline by which the state would enforce its rules upon the proletariat it employed would be the same rules as those by which the capitalist imposes discipline in his own interest today. There is in the whole scheme, which proposes to transform the capitalist into the collectivist state, no element of reaction, 
the use of no term with which a capitalist society is not familiar, the appeal to no instinct, whether of cowardice, greed, apathy, or mechanical regulation, with which a capitalist community is not amply familiar. In general, if modern capitalist England were made by magic a state of small owners, we should all suffer an enormous revolution. We should marvel at the insolence of the poor, at the laziness of the contented, at the strange diversities of task, at the rebellious. That this is an illusion, I shall attempt to show on a later page, vigorous personalities discernible upon every side. But if this modern capitalist England could, by a process sufficiently slow to allow for the readjustment of individual interests, be transformed into a collective estate, the apparent change at the end of that transition would not be conspicuous to most of us, and the transition itself should have met with no shocks that theory can discover. The insecure and hopeless margin below the regularly paid ranks of labor would have disappeared into isolated workplaces of a penal kind. We should hardly miss them. Many incomes now involving considerable duties to the state would have been replaced by incomes as large or larger involving much the same duties and bearing only the newer name of salaries. The small shopkeeping class would find itself in part absorbed under public schemes at a salary in part engaged in the old works of distribution at secure incomes, and such small owners as are left of boats, of farms, even of machinery, would perhaps know the new state of things into which they had survived through nothing more novel than some increase in the irritating system of inspection and of the onerous petty taxation. They are already fairly used to both. This picture of the national transition from capitalism to collectivism seems so obvious that many collectivists in a generation immediately past believe that nothing stood between them and the realization of their ideals save the unintelligence of mankind. They had only to argue and expound patiently and systematically for the great transformation to become possible. They had only to continue arguing and expounding for it at last to be realized. I say of the last generation. Today that simple and superficial judgment is getting woefully disturbed. The most sincere and single-minded of collectivists cannot but note that the practical effect of their propaganda is not an approach towards the collectivist state at all, but towards something very different. It is becoming more and more evident that with every new reform, and those reforms commonly promoted by particular socialists, and in a puzzled way blessed by socialists, in general, another state emerges more and more clearly. It is becoming increasingly certain that the attempted transformation of capitalism to collectivism is resulting not in collectivism at all, but in some third thing which the collectivist never dreamt of, or the capitalist either, and that third thing is the servile state. A state, that is, in which the mass of men shall be constrained by law to labor to the profit of a minority, but as the price of such constraint shall enjoy a security which the old capitalism did not give them. Why is the apparently simple and direct action of collectivist reform diverted into so unexpected a channel? And in what new laws and institutions does modern England in particular, and industrial society in general, show that this new form of the state is upon us? To these two questions I will attempt an answer in the two concluding divisions of this book.
Section 8. The reformers and the reformed are alike making for the servile state. I propose in this section to show how the three interests which between them account for nearly the whole of the forces making for social change in modern England are all necessarily drifting towards the servile state. Of these three interests, the first two represent the reformers, the third the people to be reformed. These three interests are first the socialist, who is the theoretical reformer, working along the lines of least resistance. Secondly, the practical man, who as a practical reformer depends on his shortness of sight, and is therefore today a powerful factor, while the third is that great proletarian mass for whom the change is being effected, and on whom it is being imposed. What they are most likely to accept, the way in which they will react upon new institutions, is the most important factor of all, for they are the material with and upon which the work is being done. Of the socialist reformer, I say that men attempting to achieve collectivism or socialism as the remedy for the evils of the capitalist state find themselves drifting not towards a collectivist state at all, but towards a servile state. The socialist movement, the first of the three factors in this drift, is itself made up of two kinds of men. There is the man who regards the public ownership of the means of production and the consequent compulsion of all citizens to work under the direction of the state as the only feasible solution of our modern social ills. There is also the man who loves the collectivist ideal in itself, who does not pursue it so much because it is a solution of modern capitalism as because it is an ordered and regular form of society which appeals to him in itself. He loves to consider the ideal of a state in which the land and capital shall be held by public officials who shall order other men about and so preserve them from the consequences of their vice, ignorance, and folly. These types are perfectly distinct in many respects antagonistic, and between them they cover the whole socialist movement. Now imagine either of these men at issue with the existing state of capitalist society and attempting to transform it along what line of least resistance will either be led. The first type will begin by demanding the confiscation of the means of production from the hands of their present owners and the vesting of them in the state. But wait a moment. That demand is an exceedingly hard thing to accomplish. The present owners have between them and confiscation a stony moral barrier. It is what most men would call the moral basis of property. The instinct that property is a right, and what all men would admit to be at least a deeply rooted tradition. Again, they have behind them the innumerable complexities of modern ownership. To take a very simple case, decree that all common lands enclosed since so late a date as 1760 shall revert to the public. There you have a very moderate case and a very defensible one. But conceive for a moment how many small freeholds, what a nexus of obligation and benefit spread over millions, what thousands of exchanges, what purchases made upon the difficult savings of small men, such a measure would wreck. It is conceivable, for in the moral sphere a society can do anything to society, but it would bring crashing down with it twenty times the wealth involved and all the secure credit of our community. In a word, the thing is, in the conversational use of the term, impossible. So your best type of socialist reformer is led to an expedient which I will here only mention 
as it must be separately considered at length later on account of its fundamental importance, the expedient of buying out the present owner. It is enough to say in this place that the attempt to buy out without confiscation is based upon an economic error. This I shall prove in its proper place. For the moment I assume it and pass on to the rest of my reformer's action. He does not confiscate, then. At the most he buys out, or attempts to buy out, certain sections of the means of production. But this action by no means covers the whole of his motive. By definition, the man is to cure what he sees to be the great immediate evils of capitalist society. He is out to cure the destitution which it causes in great multitudes, and the harrowing insecurity which it imposes upon all. He is out to substitute for capitalist society a society in which men shall all be fed, clothed, housed, and in which men shall not live in perpetual jeopardy of their housing, clothing, and food. Well, there is a way of achieving that without confiscation. This reformer rightly thinks that the ownership of the means of production by a few has caused the evils which arouse his indignation and pity, but they have only been so caused on account of a combination of such limited ownership with universal freedom. The combination of the two is very definition of the capitalist state. It is difficult indeed to dispossess the possessors. It is by no means so difficult, as we shall see again, when we are dealing with the mass whom these changes will principally affect, to modify the factor of freedom. You can say to the capitalist, I desire to dispossess you, and meanwhile I am determined that your employees shall live tolerable lives. The capitalist replies, I refuse to be dispossessed, and it is, short of catastrophe, impossible to dispossess me. But if you will define the relation between my employee and myself, I will undertake particular responsibilities due to my position, subject the proletarian as a proletarian, and because he is a proletarian, to special laws, clothe me, the capitalist, as a capitalist, and because I am a capitalist, with special converse duties under those laws. I will faithfully see that they are obeyed. I will compel my employees to obey them, and I will undertake the new role imposed upon me by the state. Nay, I will go further. I will say that such a novel arrangement will make my own profits perhaps larger, and certainly more secure." This idealist social reformer therefore finds the current of his demand canalized. As to one part of it, confiscation. It is checked and barred. As to the other, securing human conditions for the proletariat, the gates are open. Half the river is dammed by a strong weir, but there is a sluice, and that sluice can be lifted. Once lifted, the whole force of the current will run through the opportunity so afforded it. There it will scour and deepen its channel, there will the main stream learn to run. To drop the metaphor, all those things in the true socialist demand which are compatible with the servile state can certainly be achieved. The first steps toward them are already achieved. They are of such a nature that upon them can be based a further advance in the same direction, and the whole capitalist state can be rapidly and easily transformed into the servile state, satisfying in its transformation the more immediate claims and the more urgent demands of the social reformer, whose ultimate objective indeed may be the public ownership of capital and land, but whose driving power is a burning pity for the poverty and peril of the masses. End of section 11